Good afternoon with CP Podcast listeners. This is your host, Julia G. It is Thursday, July 7th, and today I have a very familiar guest, and we're going to be talking about what the heck is going on with the Supreme Court. So today I have with me David Domke, who you're all very familiar with. And David, would you like to say hi? Yeah, hey, everybody. Hey, Julia. So thanks for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us. Um, I'm sure me and the rest of the public have many questions about what's been going on with the Supreme Court. It's been in the news all over, um, news around Roe v. Wade, news around Clarence Thomas, around political possible the Supreme Court pulling a possible political coup. Um, these are just some headlines that I've seen in the news, and I, I'm sure me and everyone else would love to hear your thoughts and explanation of what exactly is going on with the Supreme Court right now. So we're excited to hear from you today. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and we're, I know we got about 20, 25 minutes here. So um, the, you know, you think about the United States and the way that our government system is set up and it's, I'm not here to make the case that it's the best way to do it or the only way to do it, but looking at what it is, um, it's set up as three separate branches of the federal government. You have the legislative, which is the members of the House and the Senate. They get elected and they make laws. Um, you have the executive branch, which is headed by the president, which is the only national election that we that everybody in America who's a voter votes upon. Um, and the, the, the executive branch is supposed to execute the laws to make sure they get carried out. Legislative branch makes them. Executive branch executes them. And then the third branch, which is the judicial branch, which is supposed to review the laws and make sure that they accord in their interpretations with the United States Constitution. Um, I just spoke about this exact content or some chunk of it today for uh, in uh, a session I did with our, our next generation college student internship program, Action Academy. Um, and I love that program. We have so many great people in it. So I'm, I've been thinking about a lot about this. So if you think of those three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial branch, the only one that is um, not elected, the people that are not elected at the top of it, is the judicial branch. Those folks are appointed because um, the top of the judicial branch is the Supreme Court of the United States. Those people are appointed. They're nominated by the president of the United States and they're approved or voted upon and approved by the Senate, U.S. Senate. And then they have lifetime appointments. They are judges until they pass away or they so choose to resign. Now, they could be impeached, but we haven't had anything like that in a long, long time in this country. Um, So what's going on right now is that a body of the government, the Supreme Court, that is not elected, um, it has lifetime appointments, is making some monumentally uh, important interpretations of uh, previous Supreme Court decisions and also laws. And they get to have the final say in the, in the judicial branch. They really do. Um, so at the end of the day, right now, there is a body of folks unelected who are having enormous impact on our political system. And that doesn't mean that we have no other levers to pull, but it feels maddening to all of us who uh, want elected officials who make decisions to be accountable, at least to the public. And these folks face no accountability at all. So to call it a political coup, 
Um, I don't think that's that's off base to say that they're not they're people that are trying to kind of like drive us a certain direction and they've been put into place for certain reasons. Um, and they certainly have an agenda. And that agenda is to roll back to to move us backwards in time on a whole host of laws, including civil rights, women's rights, um, potentially gender equality, um, <clears throat> climate, gun rights, gun safety, all kinds of things. It is absolutely terrifying, maddening, um, infuriating, and uh, something that we have to pull other levers to, to, to respond to. Absolutely. So, David, this has been a question on my mind, too, is that the Supreme Court of the United States is not an elected body. Do you do you know why why that is? Like, why don't we hold elections for these Supreme Court justices who have lifetime appointments in the same way that we hold elections for our presidents or even our mayor or our other elected officials? Sure. It's a good it's a good question. Um, And I'll I'll try I'll answer it with like the uh the the best argument that is out there for why we don't have elections for judges like what's the best what's the best argument on that side of the equation okay uh, the best argument is that um there should be somebody who oversees our government or has some oversight of some parts of the government who is not facing voters on a regular basis so that they are able in theory to to kind of stand outside of the day-to-day political influences and intrigue and power. And so they're able to make more thoughtful, reasoned, careful decisions because they don't face um, having being like, you know, elected out of office. So like that's the line of thinking that goes into why judges, these judges, all federal judges, in fact, every federal judge, because there's multiple federal courts. There's a Supreme Court at the top, but then there's district courts, circuit courts of appeals um, as well. Uh, all federal judges are appointed by this by the president and then uh, nominated by the president and approved by the Senate. So none of them are elected and they're all lifetime appointments. So the logic behind doing it is to put people who are who would be able to make good decisions for our country without ever having to worry about some some horrible person who like rabble rouses around comes and gets that person gets that judge elected out of office. That's the theory behind it, Julia, that that we, it, would, it does us some good to have not everybody elected, but to have some people not elected and to be like outside of that system of everyday elections. The flip side of that, of course, is that there's no accountability once they enter the position where what do you do with them? There's almost nothing that can be done once they hold the position. Um, and that's what we face now um, is that situation. And I, I, I'm, I think that my position on this would be this. Um, I don't I don't know if I totally I know I, I know I don't totally buy the idea that it's good for our society to have judges who never face the public or face an electorate. I don't buy that. However, I could see impossible theory that it could have value. So what I would propose is that all of our federal judges should have term limits. Okay. They should all have term limits. So they can still be appointed by the president, nominated by the president, appointed by the, by the uh, Senate, but that they all serve for a certain length of time. And we could have that be 10 years for federal judges. Maybe, maybe it's 15 or 20 maximum for the Supreme Court. Uh, but I would like that. And a second reform I would like to have is that every president gets the chance for every four year term.
for every four-year term, a president gets a chance to nominate two judges to the court. And if that produces a larger court than nine justices, so be it. But that every president gets a chance to do that. Because Donald Trump got three judges that he nominated in four years, and Barack Obama got two in eight years. Okay? So I, that's not fair to me at all. Right. And... So for me, like this, this issue of lifetime appointments, like I am totally, I, I agree. I feel like term limits would be an amazing way to tackle some of these issues that we're facing. Um, for me, with the current system, seeing these judges with lifetime appointments, when I look at the Supreme Court as like a 21 year old, I do not see myself represented um, oh, yeah. on the court at all. Like these are people who they're in their 80s. Um, they're in their 80s and they were born and raised with certain values in a different society that's totally different from the one that I'm living in now. So like, as like a member of like the public, I feel like there is such a distance between me and the representatives on the Supreme Court. Like, and it's frustrating because they have lifetime appointments, unless of course, like you mentioned that we impeach them. Oh, that's another thing. So what would be the impro the process for impeachment? Um, I know there's been calls for Clarence Thomas is impeachment recently. There's been a lot of petitions <laughs> yeah. signed, but what is the process for impeaching a Supreme Court justice? Sure. So uh, the process, uh, I'll answer the process question and then talk bigger about Thomas. Okay. Um, the impeachment process is the same for the, a federal Supreme Court justice as it is for the president of the United States. And what that impeachment process is, um, is that the House of Representatives has to vote to impeach. And if they vote to impeach, then the Senate holds a trial. And the trial, this everybody in the Senate, every every senator gets one vote to decide to impeach. And it, ha it takes a two-thirds majority to impeach a, a, a Supreme Court justice. Those are exactly the same requirements for impeaching the president. House has to vote first to impeach. And then the Senate holds the trial and you need two thirds of senators to vote yes. When Donald Trump was impeached for the second time after the January 6th insurrection, um, I believe it was seven, maybe it was nine. Uh, Republican senators joined the Democrats and voted to impeach Donald Trump. Um, so that that's the kind of like the high watermark you might expect of anybody who would vote against their own kind of political party or their political ideology. So it's unlikely that any Supreme Court justice could get impeached for anything outside of uh, a moral, moral action, like a murder or something, a sexual assault, something that was heinous. Uh, but just a set of decisions that many, many people don't like would not be enough to get a Supreme Court justice impeached. So it's not that's not really a viable option in this in this world right now, where where the Republican and the Democratic parties are so divided that neither party would be willing to give many votes to impeach somebody that they generally agree with. So that's unlikely. It's unlikely. Now, Clarence Thomas, though, is is an important figure. Uh, he is a, a person who was appointed to the court in, I think, 1991 or 1992. I think it was 91. Uh, a very famous or infamous uh, hearing when Anita uh, Hill, who was a very well-respected lawyer, attorney, accused Thomas, who had been her mentor of sexual harassment. Um, and there were other women who were prepared to come forward and testify that the, that the Senate didn't consider when, um, when Thomas was being uh, appointed. So he did get appointed. It was a 52 to 48 vote. It's the closest vote we had until we had 
Justice Kavanaugh get appointed recently. Um, and uh, Thomas replaced on the court one of the most famous liberal justices ever, Thurgood Marshall. So we went from this unbelievable civil rights icon, Thurgood Marshall, who had been the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and had argued the Brown v. Board of Education case that overturned segregation in schools. We went from Marshall on the court to Thomas, who is the most conservative on the court. That shift in time in 1991 uh, was a turning point moment, really, for the court. And, and we can really track where we are today back to that shift. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I go on Twitter a lot, and I've seen many tweets saying that the appointment of um, Thomas was almost a, it was an insult to Thurgood Marshall, who was his predecessor. So, totally. Yeah. One other thing. One other thing. I'll quick mention. You know, Clarence Thomas is married to Ginny Thomas, and Ginny Thomas has been very involved in, in like right wing conspiracy theories for some time. And it's clear the evidence is very, very clear that she tried to overturn the elections of 2020. Um, so, and, it's, and they talk about each other as like they're the best friends, and they never make decisions without each other. So the idea that Clarence Thomas wasn't feeding her some kind of insider thoughts about what the court would, would do if a if a case got to them is ludicrous. So on that reason alone, like I'm, I would be there like, yeah, Thomas should at least recuse himself from any decisions involving January 6th. But I would prefer that he, he he's my least favorite justice. I'll just say that. Right. So so we are at a fascinating point in time where the Supreme we're really feeling kind of the yeah, power of the yeah. Supreme Court with Roe v. Wade. Um, there's talks about them going after birth control, going after L LGBTQ rights. Have Has there ever been a time similar to this where the Supreme Court has had such an impact, had such power on American democracy? Uh, you know, so I haven't written a book or I'm not an expert on the court per se, but I know enough through my study of American politics and race uh, and religion in American life to say that, that the answer to that is actually definitely yes. Definitely yes. Um, the, in the mid-1800s, the court made a series of decisions that, that spurred us towards a civil war and refused to kind of take on enslavement as a, as a moral abomination. Um, in the uh, early uh, sorry, late 1800s, the court made a series of decisions that stripped away the protections of the Reconstruction Amendments that had granted black Americans, particularly black men, full civil rights and voting rights. They steadily stripped them away, just like the court has done with the Voting Rights Act uh, in the last couple of decades now. So you can look at the middle 1800s, you can look at the late 1900s. Those are bad moments from a progressive viewpoint. From a good, from a progressive viewpoint, a really good period of time when the court had enormous influence was what's known as the Warren Court, which started in the early 1950s, included the Brown v. Board of Education decision, and went all the way to the early 1970s. And a whole series of uh, progressive decisions were decided in there, including wiping out school prayer. Um, it included the protection of uh, 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 rights for those that are uh, uh, um, arrested. It included fair trial protections. It included immigration protections. There was an enormous body of progressive decisions in there during the Warren Court that moved us forward. Um, but since then, we've steadily gone backwards. So I would say this is one of a period of times when the court has had enormous 
influence in American life. It, of course, feels very visceral to us because we're here right now. Right, right. Absolutely. So there's there's been talks about, uh, correct my pronunciations, but like codifying Roe or um, <laughs> is that is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, that okay. is. Yeah, yeah like yeah. the the like the codification of some of these court decisions, because as you can see, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, could you explain what that what what is codification and what that would look like? I can. I'll, yeah, I think I can. I think I'll give it a shot. OK. Um, <laughs> and just as a quick aside to kind of give everybody a quick a little insight into because that's part of what these podcasts are about. Um, the, we actually don't sit around talking this way. <laughs> at CP. Yeah. We don't. We don't. We do our work most yes. of the time, yeah. right? So it's it's really good for us to do this because we learn so much, right? We we like it helps us in our own work to be like, okay, I get it now. I understand. Um, so I dig the questions that you're asking, Julian. I appreciate them. Um, so the way the Supreme Court issues decisions. They are the final say in, Amer in the United States on what counts as constitutional, what counts as constitutional. And if something is considered constitutional, that means that the U.S. Constitution, as it was written many years ago and has been amended 27 times since it was initially passed in 1787, um, the Constitution addresses a lot of things, says a lot, speaks to a lot of things, uh, and then doesn't speak to a lot of other things. And so the court, what it, the court does when a case comes to it is they are deciding whether or not an action or a law that it's evaluating accords or aligns with the intent of the Constitution. If it does not align with that, then it's ruled, the case is ruled to be unconstitutional. If it does align with the Constitution, then it's ruled to be constitutional. This is all assuming that the court does its job fairly and without injecting bias. Like they, if they evaluate that a, a case or a, a, a law is constitutional, it gets upheld. The law continues. If they rule that the law is not constitutional, then I'm sorry, it does not accord with the, the Constitution that's ruled as unconstitutional. That's what happens most of the time. What happened in the Roe v. Wade case is that in 19, in the early 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, a whole bunch of states around the country passed laws banning abortions. They saying that you couldn't do this. And there was nothing that's in the Constitution that speaks to this, to abortions, because the Constitution was written, you know, 250 years ago, 220 years ago. Right. So there's nothing in the Constitution that speaks to abortions. So people who challenged these laws banning abortion and the, in the Roe v. Wade case, it was a Texas law. Um, they said that this law was that this law banning abortion infringed upon a series of values that were embedded in the Constitution that uh, it never, although it never mentions abortion, those values are there, the values of liberty and the values of freedom and the value of privacy. And that the uh, the lawyers made the case that even though abortions never talked about in the Constitution, these values that are part of an abortion decision. Um, are, are do align with the Constitution. And in the Roe v. Wade case, the Supreme Court decided seven to two, seven yes, two no, that that argument was correct, that actually there were a series of values embedded in the Constitution that protected a woman's right to have an abortion. That's what they said. They said the Constitution upheld the law. This time in the Dobbs decision, a just set of justices, this time six to three the other way, ruled that this, the Constitution does not uphold uh, 
those values are not significant enough in the Constitution and that abortion does not benefit from these kind of embedded values in the Constitution. And thus, the Constitution does not protect a right to an abortion. That's what the court says. So the first decision said, hey, the court doesn't the court. The court said the Constitution doesn't talk about abortion, but these other implicit values there uphold the idea of abortion. This time, the court said, no, those values are there, but they're, they don't they aren't strong enough to uphold the right to an abortion. Now, that's the gist of it all. But right. I want to add one more piece because I know we're getting close to the end of time here. Uh, but I want to add one more piece that speaks to our work of common power. What the court did not say is that the Constitution prevents abortion. It did not say that because how could the Constitution possibly say that? Right. Okay. What the court said is that the Constitution does not answer the question of abortion. It does not protect it like the judges that said in 1973, and it does not ban it like today. It just doesn't speak to it, and thus states can do what they want. Mm. All right? Thus states can do what they want. Well, in the American system, federal law trumps state law. So if you pass a federal law that protects the right to an abortion and the justices have already said that the Constitution tells us nothing about abortion, so it can't it can't knock it down. It couldn't like say, hey, that law is unconstitutional. It would all they'd be able to say is that the Constitution doesn't tell us anything. So that law, a federal law, which you're calling codifying, which is to create a law would at the federal level would protect a woman's right to an abortion. All right. So that kind of law would be would would make it would survive. And so that's our, that's our endeavor right now. And the way we get to that is we, we elect two more senators uh, who then make the kind of blocking point senators in the U.S. Senate, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, less important. The Dems wipe out the filibuster and then pass a law with a majority of votes. That's our endeavor. This this election is to try to make that happen. Wow. And that's that's where our work here at Common Power comes in, right? Totally. So I said at the beginning of the podcast, like there's unelected judges are making all these cases. So what's our response to that? We have to lean in even more to the elected branches of the government and push for people to be able to vote and to get good people elected. That's always been our lane at Common Power. It's just the case that now our lane is pretty much the only lanes that are there. Yeah, absolutely. So, David. What can our podcast Joya? listeners do right now to <sighs> battle the Supreme Court <laughs> and save American democracy? The most important thing is to um, hold the U.S. Senate. Um, right now, the Democrats have a 50-50 equal number, but with the vice president, we get the tiebreaker in the U.S. Senate. Um, if the Democrats can hold the U.S. Senate, then they get to appoint judges, federal judges, for the, at least the next two years of the Biden presidency. That's the single most important thing we could do right now, because the justices that Biden has been appointing are actually they do reflect the America that you want to see, Julia. Right. That's the good news. This president is disappointing a lot of progressive. I understand. But on judges, he's a home run. Agreed. Okay? He's a home run. Right. So the most important thing we could do is help to hold the Senate by either winning all the races that we currently are defending or actually winning all those plus gaining a seat or two. The second most important would be to hold the U.S. House. The Democrats have a very slight majority in the U.S. House. That is a tough hill to climb in this election. 
um, for the Democrats because inflation is so difficult. But if we could do both of those, get two more justices in the U.S. Senate and hold the House, then we could do what I'd said, what you said, codify Roe v. Wade. We could also pass voting rights laws. So at the end of the day, what does that mean for common power volunteers? It means to devote, as we always talk about, time and treasure at mm-hmm. CP. Time and treasure. Time is you can you join a team, and on July 25th, we have an on-ramp to fieldwork workshop that will be run by our fieldwork team that everybody can come to. It's at 5 p.m. Pacific time on Zoom. Come and just see how you get involved, and it is super, super easy. Or if that really isn't your thing, totally understand then we're going to ask you to support us financially. This is where Julie and I come in. We raise money to support this organization, to support all our incredible leaders and all the incredible work we do. And so we'll, we would love to have that. So you could contact Julie and I, or you can go to our donate button, right? Yes, it's right It's right on the top right of our website. You can contact me at julia at commonpower.org or david at david, dot, david at commonpower.org to figure out ways you can support. But we we need we need everyone right now. We absolutely need everyone right now. We really do. And isn't that the irony of it all, Julia? To build the <laughs> to build the more diverse America that that actually does include everyone, but particularly includes those who've been who've been historically excluded in our system. We actually need everybody in order to build a more inclusive America. And you know, we're not gonna get everybody, but there's an awful lot of people that are with us. And if we just all took action, that would be a, a good step there. Yes, that would be a game changer for us all. Yes. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today, David. You've you've educated us in the CP community and hopefully the general public a lot more about what's going on with the Supreme Court. And thank you so much for, for providing that clarity and a path forward. Hey, Julia, thanks for the podcast and all the great work you